The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. As you know, listeners, I love to collect the stories of the people around me, and it's an honor to hold space for them. And today, of course, is a special conversation that I'll be having with my new friend, Sue Inches, who I was introduced to by my dear friend, Jeff Eichler. Jeff and I exchange books. He sent me Braiding Sweetgrass, and I sent him The Comfort Crisis. And he sent me The Feather Thief, and I sent him another book. And we go back and forth, and he has been interviewing really, really interesting people in his podcast, Cultivating Curiosity. And after he spoke with Sue, he immediately made the introduction because he knew I would appreciate her stories and that our listeners would benefit from hearing how she goes about her advocacy for the environment. Sue, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, let's just dive right in. You know from listening to a few of my episodes that I love to start by asking my guests to share something with our audience about themselves that most people probably don't know about them. It's something that's not on their bio or in their resume or on their LinkedIn profile. And I ask you to share something like this so that we have some context for our listeners to understand the rest of the stories that you'll be sharing. And what I find is that by sharing something like this, it helps people see us, regardless of what they hear later, as multidimensional beings. So, Sue, what do you have to share with us today? Well, I love the question. And what I'm going to share with you is really how I became an independent um, environmental advocate. So I had been a professional uh, environmental lobbyist and policymaker and organizer um, with the Maine state government for 14 years. And then, uh, unfortunately for me, uh, our voters elected an extreme right-wing governor uh, and this was long before Trump, actually, but a very similar type of candidate. And he came in and he wanted to get rid of everybody who had been doing positive environmental work. And so essentially, I was laid off and lost my job. And of course, the work I'd been doing was like my dream job. So it was a little difficult. And not only that, um, I was um, you know, registered Democrat. So sort of all all the policy doors closed at the same time uh, when I got laid off. I couldn't go back and do this work for somebody else. So what I did is I thought, well, I'll pivot and I will um, I'll become a nonprofit director. So I started applying for jobs in that field. And over a period of about five years, um, I was a final candidate in probably at least 15 searches. Like I was the last, you know, the final two candidates, the final three candidates, but I was never the one selected. And Ooh. this became after a while, pretty uh, much of a downer. I, I mean, it's, it's rejection. You know, you're putting your best self forward and they don't want you. Um, and I didn't understand something at the time, which was that these nonprofits were looking for people who had been experts in their specific field for probably 20, 30 years to lead their organization. And what's different about me is that I had been working on all kinds of different issues. So I had worked on 
fisheries and solid waste and land use management and land conservation and energy and renewables. You know, I'd worked on all sorts of projects on different topics, but I hadn't worked on any one thing for like 20 years. So that's, I think, why when it came down to the final two candidates, they would choose the person who'd been doing the same thing for 20 years. So anyway, at the end of this process, I, I got to a place where I, I just could not bring myself to apply for one more position. I was so rejected. I just, I, I can't even put the energy into it. I, I've had it. I'm, I'm burned out on this. And so I didn't know what to do. I was, I was wondering, so, okay, what's next? And it was right at that time where I heard, it's almost like the, the, the Old Testament, the still small voice. I heard this little tiny little thought came into my mind. And what it was, was, well, maybe I have a body of knowledge. Like I never really thought that I did, but maybe I have a body of knowledge. And maybe that body of knowledge is about the process of creating policy change, about the process of social change. It's not about content. It's not about solid waste or fisheries or renewable energy. It's about how to make change happen. And these the, those content areas are just the vehicle for that. So I had this little tiny, little tiny idea. And when I had the idea, I wrote a one page proposal for a course called Advocating for the Environment. And I sent it off to two local colleges. And what happened was both colleges immediately hired me <laughs> to teach this class. And it was very part-time, you know, adjunct faculty, not a big thing, but I, I thought, oh my goodness, the world does want this. And so I, I dove in and I created my course and I went and taught it uh, at Colby and Bates Colleges here in Maine. And it was really successful and the students loved it. And so anyway, that's that's the story. I mean, all the rest is, is history. So I, I still teach these courses. Um, I came during the pandemic to write a book, which is the textbook. It's called Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action. And it turns out, it's the only citizen guide to environmental action out there. Nobody's written this book. You know, I sort of knew how to do it. I didn't know I knew how to do, do it, but I did. <laughs> and so when we had the um, pandemic shutdown in 2020, I wasn't teaching during that period of time because everything was canceled. I just sat down and wrote it up. And it's become a really popular book on how to be a citizen um, activist and advocate. So that's my little story. And I wanted to share it because oh, I love it. Yeah. I just didn't know I had any value. I didn't know that what I did had value because it was so different and so unique from what all these uh, employers were looking for. So what people might not know is that you went into this not really knowing what your skill was, what the what the key aspect of your knowledge would bring to the next position, the next organization, the next person that you talk to. Well, that's right. And I had no idea as I taught this part-time class that it would actually turn into a career because after I published, got the book published, and now I'm speaking to groups and doing podcasts like today, and, and I'm basically working on how to inspire people to take action. And, you know, that's, that's basically my job now. But I had no idea that this part-time course would lead to that. I love it. I love it. And you're right. Most people don't understand or haven't considered asking how you got here and um, and why why it matters. So I a few questions popped up in my head. First is, 
what did you do for those five years? Were you temping? Were you, what were you doing to have income in those five years? Not a lot. Um, you know, I am married. I had my husband's income. Um, we had enough to get by. Um, I did a few sort of workshops here and there, like facilitating groups and things like that, mm-hmm. but it was nowhere near, you know, making a living. Um, and I was spending a huge amount of time, like every one of these, uh, job applications required research, networking, reaching out to people on the board, right. multiple interviews. I mean, that's why I was so burned out because right. it was a huge job. And then without getting any result, you know, it was right. really, I just like, I can't, right. Your job was looking for the right next stop. Primarily it was, yeah. Wow. The other thing that popped into my head was how intensely short-sighted these organizations were looking for one person that has the 20 years of experience in an area doesn't necessarily make them a good leader. I mean, I could see that as being part of the organization and great foundational knowledge and expertise to help build the foundation. But as a leader, I, I'm, oh, so that that was the other thought that popped into my head. How incredibly short-sighted of these organizations to go with that aspect of leadership. Oh, well, we all know that people who are experts in a field don't necessarily make good managers or leaders for an organization. Well, I think that that's true what you're saying, but I also think that um, nonprofit boards of directors tend to not want to take a risk. You know, they they really want to go with something that feels tried and true. So, you know, if they have a candidate who's led another organization that does the same thing, <laughs> that seems like a, a kind of a, a better bet to them um, than somebody Again. who worked in government as a policy. I mean, I was trying to exchange sectors too, right? So I was right. a government um public policy analyst and lobbyist. So, you know, my experience was broader and different. Um, so yeah, I think for them, it was easier to say, oh, well, you know, this person has led a small nonprofit and, you know, he or she could, you know, move up and do ours. Right. You know? So I think well, that was part and of another, it. Another part of that interesting story is that how you tell your story in order to transition from one industry to another I think is a critical factor. And um, this is for another conversation in the future, because I think this is this will really resonate with our listeners. We have a lot of people that are trying to transition into a different industry or sector. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I do with my clients is help them tell the stories that demonstrate their expertise, period. And that's exactly what you ended up doing was realizing that my expertise isn't in one sector. My expertise is in the the process. So being able to tell the story of how you took those processes and were successful in advocacy are the stories that our listeners will want to consider if they're trying to switch into a different sector. Yeah, industry. that's right. This is more of a skill-based um, thing is to know how to run public engagement processes, how to run lobbying and campaign processes. And I, I don't think I was clear enough um, about that being my the value I brought. If I'd spoken more about that in these nonprofit interviews, I might have had a better result. But, but what you I didn't was, know. 
Yeah, I was trying I to mean, that's in. the whole point of your story. I know. They're really trying, know. <laughs> trying to fit into what they thought they wanted instead of right. being me, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh right. my gosh. Your yeah. story just totally resonates and so on so many levels. And listeners, if if this is resonating with you, I would love to hear it. Sue would love to hear it. Please send us a comment by email via my website or something. And her book, just so that you don't have to stop the, the podcast to find her book. Um, the link to her book will be in the show notes associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com, as well as ways to get in touch with her. But in the meantime, we would love to hear if this story resonates, where it took you so long to develop the clarity for what it is that you do, the, then you were able to tell the story of that yes. in order to reach your goal. Because I, I'm telling you, Sue, like I'm feeling that pain because it's taken me this long in my own business to develop that kind of clarity, to be able to have referrals. Because when I ask my clients or friends for introductions, which they love to do, they don't know how to introduce me. Right. So it's that critical factor of if I don't know, then they can't know. If I can't say, um, introduce me as a keynote speaker and author um, on the power of storytelling for career and advocacy and sales. What they're saying is, oh my gosh, yeah, she does a little bit of everything. She's so sweet. And and she's a, a, an author and a podcast host and, and she sings in a couple bands. That is not going to get me a referral for business or a job. So, so true. Yeah. I'm so glad we started with this conversation. <laughs> Kind of basic. <laughs> endlessly valuable. Endlessly valuable for people. Yeah. 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 I'm sure I'm not the only one out there who's experienced this kind of thing. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. So those are the two things that popped into my head. And um, as an example of what you do in your book, can you tell me about a um, an experience you had with somebody who read your book or took your course or whatever that then went on to actually implement what you're suggesting. Do you have a, a person in your head that pops in? Um, yeah, there have been a number of people, particularly students. Um, I, well, let's I just start in- with one. Okay. So <laughs> um, I ran into a student actually over this past weekend who took my course in college and is now, um, I think he's a paid intern with a campaign that I'm working on. And so, um, yeah, I ran into him again. He goes, do you remember me? I was in your class. And it's like, of course I do. And he's, he's absolutely loving doing this campaign work. And in the class, the college class, um, all the students form uh, little groups, little teams, and they create a campaign during the course of the the, the course. So they have to learn all the different pieces. They have to learn how to do issue research and they have to learn um, how to frame an issue and they have to learn how to create persuasive talking points and arguments. And then they have to learn how to uh, prepare a testimony uh, for decision makers. They have to learn how to tell their story. They have to learn how to create a relationship with um decision makers, whether those decision makers are, you know, uh, the college they go to because they want to divest from fossil fuels, or maybe it's a town council, they want to do a 
composting program, or maybe it's a legislative issue where they want to um, ban plastic bags. I don't know, but but they learn what are the fundamental parts of going and um, you know uh, strengthening your voice and making yourself heard and creating change. That that's what it is. And and one of the things that I, I like to talk about a lot is that the word advocacy is kind of a big, scary word. And most people think, oh my gosh, I could never do that. But what I like to say is, no, actually, if you like to have friendships or relationships with people, if you like to communicate and talk and tell a story, you're a perfect person to be an advocate because you can be um, an authentic storyteller and you can move a decision maker to change their mind or do something different. So it's really the connection between storytelling and advocacy is really strong and something I teach about. Absolutely. You were talking about all of these um, very strategic and methodical approaches to um, the research and the policy writing and the language to use and the messaging and the talking points. The part that stood out to me was the building relationships. Yeah. Because um, I think I think that is the most undervalued aspect of it. And mm-hmm. I've been recently very discouraged around what I'm seeing. I, I've been like that for years now, of course, seeing the polarization of our communities. And one of the things that I've been focusing on is how do you want to be known? Mm-hmm. And when you are sharing as a as an armchair activist and you're sharing on Facebook and TikTok and Instagram. What's your goal? Because the more antagonistic things that you're sharing, the less likely it is you are reducing that polarization and and anger and and violence. So um, the relationship part is what I'm curious about. When you do, you have a story about a relationship you built from your time working either on a current on a recent campaign or even when you were working for the for the government in Maine, um, where you developed that relationship. Can you tell that story? Oh, yeah. I've got a number of those. So there was a a legislator. He was in the Maine House of Representatives. His name was Henry. And Henry was from a very rural community in in Maine. And he was representing a very right-wing area. Um, So all of his views were very much about, you know, um, reduce government, don't spend anything, uh, just very, very conservative guy. Um, but I, I just struck up a relationship with him. I would, I would talk to him, um, in the hallways. Um, I would greet him with a smile whenever I walked by him. Um, and it sort of got to this, and I knew we weren't going to agree on policy, but there was always a sense of respect, um, that, you know, um, you're representing your people uh, as best as you can. And I'm representing the state government. I was actually representing the governor on issues. So we know we're going to be on different sides of issues, but that doesn't mean we can't respect each other and have a good relationship. And so the kind of the fun uh, culmination of this relationship was that he proposed um, legislation that would have one of the counties in Maine secede from the state. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so <laughs> I, I, as a lobbyist, I, I had a good enough relationship with him and knew him well enough that I could call him on the phone and say, and I did, I called him on the phone. I said, Henry, 
I said, what's your thinking behind this? <laughs> I need to understand where you're coming from. And he basically said to me, well, here's the issue is that we feel like in our rural area that nobody listens to us. You know, all the decisions get made by the big cities and we're just kind of out here and nobody cares. So, you know, basically he had put this bill in in order to be heard. He said I he knew it had no chance of passing, but he put it in there to create a, a, a discussion around his his point. So I said, wow. Henry, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, I'll see you at the hearing, <laughs> you know, and I understood it. And um, I, I never gave him a hard time about it. I just said, oh, OK, now, now I kind of get it. And then this is the really cool part is that uh, sometime later, I was in a position of introducing legislation and it had to do with um, creating a building code for the whole state. And so based on what Henry had told me about his rural county feeling left out and, you know, he kept saying legislation is not one size fit all, you know, like the things that work for cities don't work for us. So when I created my legislation for a statewide building code, I created a special category for rural counties saying that they um, didn't have to do the same things that the big cities did to comply with it. You know, I like created a whole different law for them. And I thought about that and I thought, how come we're, all, why have we been creating these laws that are one size fit all when they don't? And so I, as a result of that conversation and that relationship, I created a bill that had different criteria for different parts of the state and it passed. And I think that it would never have passed if I had just made it good for the cities and everybody else to heck with you, you know? So it really, it, it, he actually, I learned from him. I learned an important thing from him that actually helped me in my work. Right. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, always smile, always wave. We know we aren't going to agree on a lot of stuff, but so what? We're, we're good people. Right. I well, I <laughs> just understanding that, uh, first of all, approaching it with curiosity. Yeah. Why are you doing this? I'm so curious to know what, what made you decide to do this. Uh, please help me understand it right? The, the curiosity, genuine curiosity, and then listening, actually trusting that what they're saying is true. Yeah. And we all know people fib. Mm -hmm. They're there, especially, especially when we're talking about politicians, right? We yeah. know that there's some lying going on. There's some mistruth, right? That they're taking things oh, out yeah. of context. We know that for sure. Mm -hmm. But if we say, what is the purpose behind this? And they tell us, we have to just take it for, at face value and say, okay, that, I get it. Um, that's that's where that's coming from. So I, I love both aspects of that. And then the next part of your story, this whole idea of understanding that one size does not fit all, that again, especially resonates with me. I live in Montana. Oh. And we see that all the time, not just from our state. And as a matter of fact, we kind of go backward here. We listen to more from the rural communities than we do from the cities because we're so rural. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about that is that the federal agencies that try to do that one size fits all approach to our states is really damaging, especially here in Montana. And as a specific example, there are EPA regulations that are totally appropriate for places like Flint, Michigan and Denver, Colorado, and LA, right? But when you impose that kind of control on a small 
community like Helena, Montana, which provides drinking water, uh, potable potable water for, oh, maybe 30,000 people in our community. When you impose that kind of regulation, it costs us multi-millions of dollars to make that work here. And we don't have the population to support that. So every time that happens, and the, what's interesting about that is that years ago when I worked for the city, that was one of the conversations we were having in our city was that this rule was being imposed on us and we couldn't afford to do it. And we couldn't get grant funding. We couldn't get federal funding to do this project because our water prices, the rates that we charged our citizens, our residents, weren't high enough. Oh, gosh. <laughs> they weren't a, a high enough percentage of our medium income, median income mm-hmm. to warrant getting help from federal dollars. So I love that you just, I mean, as somebody who worked for the state of Maine, recognizing that is huge. That's huge. Yeah. So how does how does that apply? Have any of your students had that kind of experience where they they had that awakening that, that they told you about? Oh, gosh. Um, I can't think of a specific example, although many of them have worked on a variety of issues. And, and one of the keys to this is to ask the question, why? Often we just don't actually do that. I mean, so why did Henry want his county to secede from the state? <laughs> you know, I, I I did not know the answer. Like, wh- why do you want to do this? Um, so I think that's kind of a key to it, really, is is being willing to ask that question. You want, And a why is a question of wanting to understand. And so it's a really great way to open a conversation with someone who disagrees with you, actually. Yeah. Why do you feel that way? You know, I, I don't think climate change is real. Why? What makes you say that? <laughs> you know, like that's a great why is okay. a wonderful opening question. Sure. As long as it comes without judgment. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. listeners, it's kind of right. like when your teenager does something stupid and you say, what the hell were you thinking? Right. Or even, even if you just say, what were you thinking? Guaranteed that's going to come across as judgment. <laughs> it's not a great way to have the conversation. <laughs> you are you are not going to end the conversation well. So the same thing for any conversation with somebody who disagrees with you. you yeah. You have to set aside that judgment, that bias, and yeah. be truly. You have to really want to know curious. what the answer is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Be truly curious. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, one of the things you brought up in an email to me was the the spirituality aspect of your work. And because I just completed this amazing full day storytelling and spirituality workshop in Maine, <laughs> I would love to hear that story because uh, when you brought it up, of course, it resonated with me. So for our listeners. Yes, definitely. So, um, So one of the things I talk about is our Earth Connection stories. And I've never met anyone that doesn't have one. I mean, everyone has either a place they have gone where they were just struck by the beauty of nature, um, or maybe they um, had an experience. They they climbed a mountain and the the view from there just blew their socks off. Or maybe it was an ocean sunset or, um, you know, a place they like to go to really regenerate their energy. We all have these earth connection stories, as I call them. 
And one of the things that's really important in environmental advocacy work is to remember those and touch those because it, it for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that um, activism and advocacy work can be pretty challenging sometimes, and you need to touch on your own connection with the earth in order to stay grounded, in order to continue to go forward, um, in order to continue to have a positive attitude towards it. Because as you said earlier, if, if, if you're lashing out at somebody, that's counter to your goal to try to make positive change happen, right? So, so the earth story aspect of it is really, really important. It keeps you grounded. It reminds you of why you're doing this work. So I, when I'm teaching, I often have people um, tell their earth connection stories and try to connect with that um, and do that um, connection with other people as well. So it very much is um, a spiritual practice. And the other thing about this for me is that people often ask me, like, how can I keep going doing this work when it, you know, the the indicators are sometimes pretty negative. And what I say to that is that I actually have this internal sense that there is goodness in every person. Sometimes it's obscured by anger or um, hatred or, you know, other things. But I really think deep down, I have a faith that every human has a heart underneath all that. And that as um, an environmental advocate, what you're really trying to do when you boil it all down is you're trying to touch that place in the other person. So it might be that you are dealing with a, a legislator or um, a town council person who has, you know, been very anti-environment. And what you're trying to do is touch that person's heart to get through that stuff. And the way that you do that very often is exactly through telling an earth connection story. And so there's a great example of this going on right now um, around here, and it's starting to grow nationally too. And that is um, farmers who have had to go out of business because of PFAS contamination. So the issue is that a lot of farms had spread uh, municipal sludge on their fields because back in the 1990s and 2000s, it was considered fertilizer. It was considered good. And then later we found out that there was toxic chemicals in this sludge. And so a lot of farmers have had to go out of business. They their their fields and water is, is polluted. Um, well, the thing that's really interesting about this is that those farmers have come forward and they've told their stories in person to legislative committees. And we've been getting bipartisan uh, support to regulate these chemicals. And usually um, the Republicans don't want any regulation. That's against what their usual policy stand is. But when they hear the farmer saying, look, I had to, you know, um, I had to let go of all my cows, my dairy cows, because I couldn't sell their milk because, you know, my farm is polluted. They have stood up and said, OK, let's help you. Let's do something. So those stories that they have have cut through like all of the partisan rhetoric and all that stuff and actually created change. And so I, I'm very big on this. I think that, you know, citizens need to come forward. If, if people have a family member that has asthma or somebody has gotten cancer, I mean, these are really important things that decision makers need to hear because these are all coming from pollutants in the environment. So 
anyway, that's there. So really there's, there's the way I look at it. There's two ways that storytelling is used in advocacy. One is to ground yourself so you can do the work and stay positive. And the other is to use your stories to tell decision makers what they should do. Right. And I think one of the key aspects of this is that you have to start by building the relationship. Yeah. So I've seen, especially here in Montana, beautiful stories, people standing up and telling their stories to an audience that has no interest. Mm -hmm. And even if they're heartbreaking stories, the kind that anyone with a heart would, would feel they they're immediately cut off because of their position or the, what they look like. Mm-hmm. Or I, I can tell you a lot of women are dismissed here in Montana, mm-hmm. regardless of their story. So I think that aspect of building the relationship ahead of time is also a critical factor. Writing your city commissioner an email and saying, hey, um, this is what's happening in my life. And this is how this uh, is going to affect me. I'm going to come speak at this. Yeah. And I would appreciate your support. You know, just... um in in a small place like Maine or Montana, we both have relatively small populations. Yeah, we actually have much more access yes. to our lawmakers than most people in in bigger communities. So, yeah, I, I I love that, and I would love to hear your one. I there are so many Earth stories that are running around in my head right now because I I live in Montana for goodness sake, and I spent time in Colorado and. Even in Washington, D.C., I found myself exploring, going to the beaches and uh, going to Great Falls, uh, Maryland and Virginia. They kind of connect and hiking in those areas. And even Rock Creek Parkway is when I lived there, they shut it down to traffic from Saturday morning to Sunday afternoon. So people could rollerblade and ride their bikes and all along Rock Creek Parkway, which is just beautiful, smooth, gorgeous a few miles. But I would like to hear one of your stories. And then um, maybe our listeners will start to remember some of their own. Sure. Yeah. Um, so i um, trying to decide which one because there's so many of them. Um, share two. <laughs> start yeah, with well, the first one. One. <laughs> one of the ones that really changed my life was um, I had gone out to um, Oregon. Uh, I took a year off from college and went out there to uh, plant trees on a reforestation project. And um, I didn't know if one thing about forestry uh, at the time, but I got there and what they were doing was clear cutting these steep mountains. There was a coastal range in Oregon. And then after they'd clear cut, they would spray herbicides on the mountainsides, um, very toxic, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. These are called Agent Orange. Um, and then um, Oregon has a rainy season for about six months. And so with the the clear cutting and the herbicides, there was nothing to hold the soil to the sides of the mountains. So it's just like running down the sides of the mountains and into the rivers and out to sea with all this toxic stuff in it. And so I, as a very young college age kid, saw this and went, oh my goodness, there's got to be a better way. This this is not, I mean, I don't know anything about forestry, but I know this isn't good. And so that experience of seeing that and working on that, um, which I did for about nine months, 
um, really changed me. I, I came back and I enrolled in a um, environmental degree program right after that. It was like, we, we got to do something about this. Um, and so that's a that's a pretty poignant story of just seeing something and it's not a positive. We have both positive and negative earth stories. Right. Of course. Um, this one was not positive, but it caused me to um, make a change in my path. So, so yeah. Wow. Pretty important. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking about um, experiencing someone else's awe. And I brought this up during the storytelling and spirituality workshop I hosted is also a, a powerful story to share. And my example is that when my family moved from Washington, D.C. to Helena, Montana, we had a six-month-old baby. And my mom, I grew up in a, a pretty conservative Jewish household, conservative Jewish, not conservative political. <laughs> so, the, you know, pretty religious household. And when I was moving to Helena, my mom said, I'm just so disappointed there's no synagogue in Helena. And she was right. There's no active synagogue here and a very small, very small Jewish community. And um, I was okay with that. And she was so heartbroken that I was moving to a place with no synagogue. And I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to tell her I was okay with that <laughs> because I'm not a synagogue kind of Jewish person. I don't find my spirituality in there, in, in a synagogue. There have been definite aha moments over my life of of you know beautiful spiritual moments in the synagogue but that's not where i find my spirituality and i remember at one point bringing her she had come to montana to visit and i had the baby in the backpack and we hiked up to a high point on mount helena which is now i now right behind my house it's literally two blocks up the alley and i am on this amazing trail system and I have this vivid memory of standing at the top of this hill looking west, which is west at the top of Mount Helena is just all public land. It's BLM, Forest Service. It's spectacular. And you don't see any other people necessarily. And you definitely don't see anything civilized behind you. And I remember getting up there and saying to my mom, this is one of my favorite spots on the mountain. And I took this deep breath. And we're both peering out at just the most beautiful layers of light and hillsides and hearing the wind come up through those pine trees. It sounds like a wave of the ocean. And I looked at her and I said, Mom, this is where I find my spirituality. And I remember her looking at me, tears in her eyes, saying, okay, I hear that. That's a lovely story, Earth story. Wow, that's great. I hope that by hearing your story, by hearing my story, our listeners are picking up their own because there are so many in your life. There are the moments, like you said, where you're standing on the beach watching the sunrise or the sunset and feeling that sense of awe at the world around you. And I can tell you, I experience that every single day here in Montana, every single day. And it's heartbreaking what I'm seeing here. I have lots of stories similar to yours of being in a place and realizing the damage that we are doing as humans and so many people moving to Montana to experience that awe while then voting to reduce environmental protections. 
which is so hypocritical and and puzzling to me. So hopefully our listeners are generating their own stories that they can then share with other people around them. And even if you are not advocating at the legislative level or even at your local level, when you share those stories and you're uncovering the stories that other people have, because that's the power of storytelling. It's not just sharing your own. It's knowing that what you're doing is triggering memories for other people. Because that's the natural instinct, right? I tell a story and and you have a story bubbling up inside you that you want to share too. And when we do that, we change people's hearts and they start to look at things differently when they are at the polling place. That's exactly right. In fact, that's something I like to talk about too, is that just by sharing your story, you are changing the world. Because yes. people hear that and then they identify with that and then they remember their own story. It's really, it's really powerful. Small things, stories, small actions all make a difference. You know, one of the things I run into when I speak to groups quite frequently is people, people who would come to one of my talks are usually people that are interested in the environment and they're usually doing something, you know, composting or something, but they always feel like it's not enough. And so I'm always there trying to say, but it is enough because the way social change happens is that if you're composting and then your next door neighbor decides to try it and then the person across the street and pretty soon your whole neighborhood and then it grows. It's that's how change happens. It, it, it exactly. Grows. You're modeling the behavior. You're showing how easy it is yeah. to do the right thing or to do yeah. something that is beneficial. I love that. Yeah. So as we come full circle and you're thinking about that, your, for lack of a better phrase, your origin story, <laughs> those five years of discouragement and frustration that led to where you are now. When you think about that moment when, well, I have to back up a little bit. I ask this question often and I always have to remind myself and others, there are no light bulb moments. There's not the watershed moment. There, everything is on a dimmer switch. And every once in a while, we have that dimmer switch so close to bright and something happens that turns it on full bright. And we usually don't know until later on that that moment happened. So if you're looking back at early in your shift into, maybe it was part of your desire to write the book or your realization that it was time to write the book, or maybe it was putting together those two proposals to teach the courses. What was a moment where you decided, oh my gosh, I am finally on the right track. This is where I was meant to be. Oh, I think that moment came when I got responses from the two colleges and said, this looks great. Can we talk? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that was like, oh, and I was so discouraged. It would have, it needed to be something that direct for me to see it, you know? Um, I mean, one of the things I didn't mention in the storytelling was that during that five-year period, I got laid off two more times. I, I, I headed up a nonprofit for about 11 months, and then the board decided they didn't want to do it anymore, basically, do the mission anymore. And then another one was corporate. Um, I was in a corporate uh, position where I was um, helping rural communities get broadband uh, into their community. And the company I was with decided to go 
in a direction of just being a technology company and they they basically cut the consulting services which i was doing so oh like not only did i have all these applications but the things that i did actually do just you know both evaporated of both, uh, so 11 months both of them i had just gotten to the point where i felt like my feet were under me and i could see that it was going to be great and then boom it was gone so it was um I probably shouldn't have gone into that much stuff. But anyway, <laughs> no, this is great. This is uh, your story doesn't just happen overnight. You know, no. I think it's so important to acknowledge those incremental changes as well in that yeah. five year. That's why I asked. So thank you for sharing those yeah. two parts of your story, because they're important to those of us who have struggled. Yeah, I, I was in a job that was not a good fit for two and a half years. Six months in, I started applying for jobs. Mm hmm. And I would get to that point that you said where I would be a finalist and I wouldn't get the job and I would be devastated because I was in such a shitty position in my in the job that I had. Mm -hmm. Didn't have the luxury to just quit because I was providing health insurance for my family. So those aspects of your story are a critical factor to people relating to it. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So but that's back why, to. Yeah. That's why also it was, you know, having those two colleges, you know, I mean, I emailed out this one pager I had written about this course I wanted to teach and to have them email me back and say, wow, that looks really interesting. Can we talk? I mean, that's, it was like, you know, um, <sighs> really, phew, brought a smile to my face. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, maybe this is something <laughs> that I could do. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. So what happened next? I mean, you clearly got in touch with both of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, what was, when you think about the, the, the first conversation, one of those two conversations, what pops into your head? Um, well, of course, you know, I had never prepared a real, I, I guess lectured in classes before, like just done one class for somebody I knew, but I'd never created a whole semester. And so that was the next thing was like, oh my gosh, so how do I create a whole semester program out of this? And so I just really dug in on that, um, trying to figure out what texts I would use, what exercises I would do, what would it look like? You know, it was a real, um, you know, a lot of work actually, because um, that's what you do. You know, you you create the whole class and then you can teach it over and over once you have kind of the right. basic framework, but you have to create that framework first. So that's what I did is like, oh, okay, now I know what my job is. I have to create this framework. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was that intimidating? Not well, yeah, I would say it was. Um, I probably put more hours into it than I really needed to, but that's because I was over preparing a little bit. Well, and I think it's so important to know that when we are uncomfortable and we're over preparing in that way, and our internal dialogue is on spin mode, mm. it's because we care. Yeah. It, and it wasn't just because you wanted the income, it was because you realize the potential for this course and the impact on students and on the environment and on advocacy in general. Yeah. I think that's amazing, Sue. Yeah, I wanted it to be good. And so I did everything I could think of to make it good. And, you know, when I started out, it was just kind of a, a course. And then I ended up um, getting it so that it's now an official elective for the major. Yeah. So it, it's more serious now than it was in the beginning. Um, so yeah, it, it, it kind of grew. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Sue, this has been such a pleasure and I am so grateful for the work you put in for the struggle you experienced to get you to this point. It really has been a pleasure having this conversation. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it, Sarah. It's been great talking to you.
Well, for our listeners, um, you will, as I said, you will find the links to Sue's book and getting in touch with her to follow her and see what she's up to and maybe ask her some questions. All of that information will be in the show notes associated with this podcast episode at elkinsconsulting.com. Sue, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Listeners, now it's your turn. What will you do? How will you model the things that matter to you so that the people around you, children, adults, neighbors, friends, partners, will see what matters to you through your actions? What step can you take today that will make a difference to the world tomorrow? Even if it's not doing something, like sharing something divisive on social media. Instead, let's take one step toward the positive direction. Do one thing that will improve life tomorrow. You've been listening to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Thank you so much for your time. Please comment, send us an email. Let us know your thoughts about this episode. Thank you. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.